Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Mike. Lauren. If you had to describe your relationship with Amazon, would it be that you're in a relationship, you're just friends, or it's complicated? It's complicated. Okay. What about Walmart? Ooh, I think I've been inside like one Walmart in my life. Are you American? <laughs> like what? How have you only been inside one Walmart? Uh, I don't know. It's just the way that it's just the way that I've rolled, I think. I guess they don't have enough vegan food. Okay. <laughs> Do you know the names of their big bosses? Not necessarily the current CEOs, but the the people associated with founding these companies. Oh yeah, sure. Okay. Sam and Bud Walton, Jeff Bezos, mm-hmm. Andy Jassy. Doug McMillan. What if I told you that you are actually the boss? Oh, that's intriguing. Yes, because how you spend your money and where you spend your money is ultimately what is most important to these companies. And so you hold a lot of power as a consumer with disposable income. Okay, you have my attention. All right, let's talk about this. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And I am Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. We're also joined by longtime e-commerce and retail reporter Jason Del Rey. Jason is the author of a new book called Winner Sells All, Amazon, Walmart, and the Battle for Our Wallets. And not to bury the lead here, but perhaps most importantly, Jason is a former colleague of mine from the Recode days. Hi, Jason. It's so great to have you on the Gadget Lab again. Lauren, always, always a pleasure, whether over dinner or behind a mic. That's right. There's a whole story there about the last time we had dinner together, but we'll we'll save the steak story for later. <laughs> uh, some of you might be thinking, well, this isn't a Titans of Industry podcast. Why are we talking about the business of Amazon and Walmart and the Gadget Lab? But the fact of the matter is we all shop, every single one of us. And these retailers, perhaps more than any retailer in American history, have forever changed the way we buy things. So Jason, in the first part of this show, I want to talk about the ways not only in which Amazon and Walmart are so obviously different, right, with Amazon being focused on e-commerce, Walmart having these huge stores, but also the ways in which they're similar and how that has changed commerce. 
And then in the second half of the show, we'll get to the future of shopping, all of the wild, invisible, contactless ways that retailers want to keep us coming back to stores. So in your book, you write about the ways in which Amazon actually borrowed from the Walmart playbook. Which tenets of Walmart's business informed Amazon's strategy in the early days? Yeah, so there are a couple of key ones from the early days of Amazon uh, that we could say Jeff Bezos, quote, borrowed from Walmart. One big one is frugality. So that's the idea that when you're running your company internally, you shouldn't have any excess spending, right? This Amazon is not the Silicon Valley tech companies that have free lunches and, you know, uh, dry cleaning on campus and the like. And that comes from, you know, a Walmart idea of everything was about lowering the price for the customer. And if we're spending any excess money internally or on packaging or, I mean, on employees was in in another way, um, then then that is all going to lead to higher prices. And that's a no-no. So frugality was something that was a big deal for Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, and, and for Jeff Bezos as well. Another one was bias for action. That's an Amazon leadership principle. Essentially means we need to move fast when we're trying new things. So we might be able to be 80% sure that this new idea is great in about two weeks of planning. And maybe it would take us six months to be 100% sure we have the right plan, but it is better to move quicker with the best amount of information you have than to hem and haw about new product decisions, um, new initiatives and the like. And, and that is something that, that comes from the early days of Walmart as well. And then the last one that comes right to mind is uh, Amazon has changed on this front over the years, but Jeff Bezos saw in Walmart the idea that your pricing strategy is your marketing strategy. Essentially, mm -hmm. if you keep prices very low, you really don't have to advertise very much because customers will realize this. It'll be part of your DNA, part of what consumers expect and trust when they shop with you. And that you know, at some point in Amazon's early history uh, became a key part of how they thought about pricing online. Um, with regards to pricing structures, uh, I think that we have to talk a little bit about Prime. Mm -hmm. um, when Amazon first introduced Prime in 2004, uh, the folks at Walmart mistakenly believed that not a lot of people would pay $79 a year for it. But in fact, it turned out to be a crazy good value proposition. So how did Amazon end up making Amazon Prime such an appealing option for so many people? So Prime, you know, it was not super successful early on, but over time, you know, a couple of things happened. One was they added warehouses all across the country and that allowed them to get stuff to us quicker and more cheaply because it didn't have to go on a plane. Another thing was they added video and they had this idea that, you know, even if the video, even if the TV shows were not great, customers would see them as, you know, just an extra benefit. So maybe they didn't have the best programming, but it was something new and something that they didn't have before and added value. And over time, they tried to add a bunch of other pieces uh, to the prime value chain while still trying to keep a balance that they weren't diluting uh, the value. So let's add more here, add more there. And the more you add, the idea was the less likely it would be that someone would leave the program because you might mm -hmm. say, oh, I may not be watching as much video as I once did, but I'm still ordering a lot or I'm still listening to Amazon Music or uh, Twitch Prime, you know, one of the newer services and the like. And it became 
just kind of unstoppable for many years, sucked tens of millions of people in. And once you're in Prime, a lot of people stop price comparing elsewhere. So Walmart had its early online experiments, quote unquote, you call them that in the book. But really, Walmart, you know, was still emphasizing in-store sales while Amazon became the online everything store, due in large part to something like Prime. Then Walmart bought Jet.com. How did that really bring these e-commerce wars to a new level? And and do you consider the Jet.com buy ultimately successful for Walmart? Oh, my favorite question. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I I have my TV answer, but I will not give it because it is not new. Give us the to, real, yeah. candid, raw <laughs> podcast answer on this show. So um, let me back up a second. Doug McMillan, the current CEO of Walmart, lifetime Walmart exec, uh, but seen as sort of a, a bridge between the old guard and the new guard. He he takes over 2014. E-commerce growth there is decelerating. Amazon's eating up more market share. And he and his executive team are kind of like, this is an existential threat. And they had to convince people internally that Amazon was an existential threat. And they try to figure out what their what their plan is to get make up more ground faster online to sort of transform the company, not in 10 years, but try to transform it in a couple of years. And so they look around and they think, well, we need new leadership in digital and who can we acquire? Mm -hmm. So they they find this company, Jet.com, which was like trying a new thing, which was they weren't going to beat Walmart or Amazon on shipping speed. They were going to create new ways for shoppers to save money online. One of the things they tried is if you ordered more products in a single order, uh, they would give you more savings. Mm -hmm. Um, This was, of course, the opposite of Amazon Prime, which has trained us to buy one-off products at a time. Uh, You need that... um, I don't know what my house is dry in the winter. So we order a lot of humidifier filters. You need that one filter. Let's let's buy it. So <laughs> anyway, Jet.com's um, trying a lot of wacky things to give savings to customers. And it's kind of not working, but they're getting a lot of attention and they're growing really fast, but losing just an enormous amount of money. Their CEO, Mark Laurie, gets an introduction to Doug McMillan at Walmart And Walmart's kind of desperate. And they see this entrepreneur who previously started diapers.com and they say he can move really fast. He knows about e-commerce. We're going to take a big swing and pay $3 billion to acquire this company and really to acquire Mark Lurie and his executive team. And so that sort of begins the stage of Walmart's reinvention where they are heavily investing in e-commerce and trying to transform their business uh, essentially overnight. And did it work? Did it work? That was the tough question that I was going to give you my nuanced answer to. Okay, (laughs) here we go. So the, you know, not sexy answer is it depends on what your definition of working or success is. So what they did that was successful, they did transform the image of Walmart in hiring circles, specifically technology e-commerce hiring circles, to one that was finally paying attention and kind of, in, you know, in some ways catching up in e-commerce and could maybe just maybe acquire and hire good talent. So they changed the narrative of Walmart and were just um, pumping out new tests, new initiatives, you know, at a really high rate 
that did increase the the digital metabolism of the company. So um, I think they also just shook up the thinking inside Bentonville, Arkansas. You know, there were a lot of things that the leadership of Walmart grew not to like about the way the Jet.com folks ran their business, but they did force them to think differently, to become more urgent in digital matters. And so those were all positives. The negatives, uh, there was an acquisition strategy of some startups uh, at Walmart that really, you know, the short answer is it basically failed. Uh, They acquired a menswear a digital native brand called Bonobos mm-hmm. just sold that off recently. They paid over $300 million for it. They sold it for a fraction. They uh, they they bought a couple other startups that were a little more distressed. Uh, they sold those off as well. They thought they might be able to acquire a bunch of these brands, acquire younger, hipper customers along the way, and keep those customers from spending more money on Amazon if they can only buy these brands on Walmart. Um, that plan never really made it past inning two before it was shut down. And, um, so if you look at the one-off decisions, the grade I'd give those folks is a lot harsher, but transformation of the narrative and the metabolism, which I think count, you know, were successful, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Speaking of transforming narratives, uh, you wrote in your book that you've been working on a proposal for this book for a while, but it wasn't exactly urgent for you. And then mm-hmm. the COVID-19 pandemic happened and everything changed for you. So what elements of Amazon versus Walmart were really exacerbated by the pandemic? Yeah, that's a great point. So as we all know, e-commerce for at least the, the first, I don't know, half of the pandemic um, became a necessity, right? A lifeline for a lot of people. And so a couple of things happened. One is, I I think I found this really interesting. You know, for the first month or two, Amazon Prime, uh, the key perk of it was non-existent, right? There was no such thing. And for for some very good reasons of two-day delivery, stuff was showing one-month delivery times. And I, I thought it was interesting that Amazon never, you know, thought about refunding, uh, you know, some of the prime membership. But what that created for Walmart was a real opportunity if they could use their stores as uh, pickup hubs and delivery mm-hmm. centers. And some of their executives told me, like, we were moving at an okay pace. And then that happened. And we we had no choice. Like, we would either turn on all of our stores as delivery, you know, as mini warehouses, or essentially just seed our customer base to whoever else was serving customers better, whether Amazon or Instacart or Target. And so when you think of the things that have helped Walmart's transformation over the last few years, um, the pandemic was one because it just created this like they they had no choice. And so, so, so that created a dynamic between the two companies. I think the other thing is grocery delivery became even more, more important, and they were really competing head to head there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, there was some data at the time that Walmart maybe controlled forty percent of online grocery in the country, counting pickup as well. At the beginning of the pandemic, and then a year in, uh, Instacart had stolen some ground from them, as did Amazon as well. So those were those were the couple couple of the, the dynamics, and then you know one last one, which maybe isn't top of mind, but they were competing for. Uh, warehouse workers, right? I mean, hmm. um, 
it was really hard to get enough staffing. And so in markets where they both have big facilities, there was a lot of competition there, which in some places drove up wages, um, even if for a short period of time. Yeah, there's probably an entirely separate podcast or book to do about just the economy of workers in Amazon factories and Amazon drivers um, that we can't get to here on this show. You write a little bit in the book about how most of the negative press was directed at Walmart for a long time because it was this notorious small business killer. But now as Amazon has increasingly relied on performance data, you know, the human beings working there have started to be treated like cogs. And we've seen a really interesting move towards unionization. But we have to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk even more about the very weird future of shopping. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, it's Neil. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done by AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal. They can just go to TikTok. This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. So a funny thing happened after the pandemic-induced race to go online and buy as much toilet paper or hand sanitizer or home office equipment as humanly possible. We actually started to return to brick-and-mortar shopping in 2021 and 2022. For Amazon, this bolstered the belief that physical retail isn't going anywhere. For Walmart, this has led to a lot of strategizing around how to stay relevant for the next two decades. Jason. What is the Walmart 2040 plan? So the Walmart 2040 plan, uh, as as I understood in my reporting, was something that they asked a couple of their executives on the e-commerce side, and Mark Lurie was one of them before he, uh, spoiler alert, he's no longer at Walmart. But before he left the company, they asked for him to come up with a plan. His admission was basically this. I don't think we're going to beat Amazon on price. Um I don't think we're going to beat Amazon on convenience as they, at the time at least, were expanding warehouses still and promising uh, not only two-day shipping on Prime, but one day and in some areas, as we see now, overnight delivery. And I don't think we're going to beat them on selection, so we have to figure out another way. And the 2040 idea was something that's been called conversational commerce or really the idea that we're going to personalize the shopping experience for you, Lauren, and how we're going to do that is through maybe humans at first, but technology that are going to know what brands you like or what products you like or what's most popular in your region. And you're going to give us a request like, um, I need a 
amazing celebration gift for my close friend, Jason, who is a 41 year old author with his first book coming out. <laughs> and, um, and it's going to spit out some great ideas to you. Kind of sounds like what we're, um, what we've been talking about the last few months with generative AI and how it might affect shopping, but essentially you would text it a request and you'd get some really smart ideas. And, no longer would you have to sort through walmart.com or amazon.com and what's become a pretty awful shopping experience on some parts of their site you would we would be pushing the best curated item based on your background and your interest to you um that was the idea and it was written in a memo handed over to leadership and then mark Laurie left and it was kind of you know it was out of his hands um, I asked Doug McMillan, the CEO of Walmart, I asked him about that idea. And he basically said, you know, this idea will be part of Walmart's future. And I wanted to hold on to the technology we already have and the ideas. And it hasn't come to fruit yet. Customers don't really see it in action, but it will. And so that's the Walmart 2040 plan as I understood it. Um, will it still be the plan one year from now? Your bet is as good as mine. Uh, <laughs> but that's that's what I relay in the book. So if you look at Amazon's brick and mortar efforts, there's a lot of really forward thinking technology in place uh, to make shopping more effortless, right? Like its stores have the just walk out technology, which basically mm -hmm. operates without a cashier. If you go to a Whole Foods, which is owned by Amazon, you can have your your palm read. Uh, it <laughs> uses your palm to identify you when you check out. How much of these technologies really matter for Amazon's future? Or is there an argument to be made that the company should instead just be spending all of this time and energy fixing the deteriorating user experience of its website? <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, uh, I went into a Whole Foods yesterday in Manhattan while I was... Um, going around promoting my book. And I asked the cashier, I did not swipe my palm, but I was curious. And I, you know, New York is its own animal, but I was curious, is anyone using this? She was like, oh, all the time, super popular, um, which I maybe I shouldn't be surprised by, but I I just, Lauren, will you give your... Um, no, I, I haven't Amazon? used it either. I, I okay. see it. I see it every time I'm at Whole Foods and I haven't I haven't yet set it up. I'm sure it's one of those things that it's just a barrier to set up. And once I do it, I would start using it because I use tap to pay and I scan my iris when I go to the airport. And you know, like at some point, this is all it's all happening, but I haven't done it yet. So apparently, at least in the uh, Hudson Yards, Whole Foods in New York City, very oh, popular. Fancy. Uh -huh. um, but this is how this is how I'm thinking about it. I, I spoke to an Amazon executive who's a big champion of the company, left a few years ago, and we were talking about the just walk out technology. And I was, you know, just as someone who writes about technology, I was kind of excited about it, seemed really new. And this person was just very, very skeptical that long term, it's enough of a differentiator. Um for people to shop there consistently if the other parts of the shopping experience there are are not great. So like are the sandwiches good? Like these these were started out as in these convenience stores where you would pop in for lunch. You know, are the sandwiches very good? Um is the selection pretty good? And I was kind of like, uh oh, it's an afterthought. Like you're just in and out, but um 
you know, I've thought about that more and more as they've paused a lot of these experimental stores recently, paused the expansions. So Amazon Go is the one you're talking about. They have Amazon Fresh grocery stores. They's, they've also paused the expansion of those. And it's made me think more and more that these technology innovations, um, while might attract a certain small subset of the population, no matter what the rest of the experience there is like, the pricing, the actual quality of the food, that retail is really hard. And customers, when they're going in the store, their goal is to get stuff they want either at the price they want or the quality they want. And if it's all mediocre, but you have some cool technology, I just think they've they've realized that's not enough. And so I think they'll stay committed to physical retail. I think if nothing else, they need it for a return option for customers um, and also pickup option as shipping gets more expensive. I think Whole Foods will stay as part of the family as well, but they have a long way to go. And I think they actually entered the space with a certain amount of arrogance and um, have run into reality that, you know, there's a reason why uh, Walmart's been at this, you know, however many, you know, 60 years. It's not, you know, excellence in physical retail doesn't happen overnight. Jason, we're talking about biometric shopping, which leads me to wonder why healthcare is such a big part of the future of both of these businesses. And what does it mean when American big box retailers play such a huge role in in our health and our healthcare? So I think, you know, each company is entering the space for some similar reasons and some different ones. Uh, I'll start with Walmart. They already have a long history in the pharmacy space. It's a big part of their business. And you know, it's one of the top three largest pharmacies in the country. So I think they feel like there's some, you know, some expertise that they know the market. And I think what both companies are looking at, though, is an industry that often shows disregard or uh, even disdain for the customer. And both companies see themselves as customer obsessed or customer centric and think they can do better. Uh, Walmart thinks they can bring more accessibility to healthcare, meaning in areas of the country where good healthcare is just not uh, readily available, they think they can play a role in that. And Amazon, you know, Amazon forever, they see a market that has some margin, is complicated, and has incumbents who are not treating customers great. And they think they might be smart enough to get at it. And and they also have experimented way back. You know, Jeff Bezos and Amazon once owned a large stake in drugstore.com, which was a, a web 1.0 online pharmacy um, that didn't work. But uh, Bezos and team have had interest in the space for a long time. What would you say is the strangest or most surprising thing you've learned from writing this book about how people shop? Ooh. You know, one thing I learned, which was surprising to me, so we shop online and then do pickup at Walmart. And I showed up one day, weekday afternoon, all 15 dedicated pickup spots uh, were full. And I asked the employee when uh, my order was finally ready, it took a little while, uh, like, what's up with all these spots being full? Like, you guys are this busy? And she said, oh, they are almost all delivery drivers. So I imagine that the pickup business was mostly, you know, end customers, but they also have a, you know, they really are increasing their delivery business. And 
they bring out the orders just like they're bringing to a customer's car, but it's going to um, either an Uber driver or they have their own delivery network. So has writing this book changed the way you shop at all? I've covered these companies for a decade. So, you know, I have known the pros and cons of how they operate and how the convenience that we seek from them impacts employees and partners and the like. So I've I've struggled with all that for a while and try to spread out my shopping. I'd say I didn't really know how good Walmart's online pickup business could be as a shopper. And the other thing is um, they are now doing this thing at Walmart, which, you know, they could have been doing decades ago, which is they will reroute an online order to a store from, you know, you, you order it online. You think it's coming in two days. They realize it's in the store a mile away and it will show up on your porch that day. And maybe I would have expected that from Amazon, but from Walmart, it seemed like, I know it's not magic. There are people doing this work, but kind of seemed like magic. So um, if they can execute that at scale, could be really formidable in racing Amazon for our convenience. But that was something that was surprising that I learned just reporting out and testing. Well, I hope Andy Jassy is listening to this podcast and hears that. And sounds like he's on the cusp of losing Jason Del Rey as a customer to Walmart. <laughs> My goodness. And remember, you are the boss, Jason. You're the one with the wallet. Where you spend your money matters. All right, let's take another break and then we'll come back with our recommendations. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Jason Del Rey, our guest of honor, what is your recommendation this week? My recommendation is season two of the show, The Bear. Um, I am like to think of myself as a short king and one of the <laughs> hottest short kings in Hollywood is the main actor of The Bear. That is not a good sell at all. <laughs> um, really fun show, dramatic. My wife and I love season one. It I wanted to dress up as the main actor for Halloween. And my wife said, um, but you don't have biceps. And so I didn't. <laughs> um, but You can get I'm those on Amazon. Um, uh, I can get them. Right. Bezos did too. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to season two, wherever you find that show, which I don't even know anymore because our TV viewing life is a mess. Is it FX and Hulu? Maybe? Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. So. Okay. okay. That sounds right. That's a okay. good recommendation, Jason. I love it. <laughs> Thanks, Warren. Uh, Mike, what's your recommendation? Uh, well, on a more somber note, um, this week marks a year since the U.S. Supreme Court passed the Dobbs decision, which effectively overturned Roe versus Wade mm -hmm. and ended uh, guaranteed access to abortions for Americans. 
So to mark the one year since this decision, Wired has a series of stories called Life After Row, uh, and it's excellent. It's really good. It's running all across Wired all week. Uh, You can find it on the homepage of Wired.com. You can also just follow the show notes. But we've teamed up writers from the business desk, from the culture desk, from the science desk, of course, to tell these stories about uh, what the changes have been Mm -hmm. over the last year. For example, uh, lack of training for OBGYNs Mm -hmm. in states uh, that now have illegal abortion, Uh, the uncertain future of abortion pills and their access around the country. Uh, There's a story about what's going on in Europe with abortion there. Uh, A couple of really good stories about digital platforms, one about how Google is profiting from the the anti-choice clinics, the uh, crisis pregnancy centers. Uh, They give them free ads, and then they also make money off of those Mm -hmm. ads. Uh, And then there's also uh, big problems on TikTok with stifling information about how to find abortions. So uh, it's a fantastic run of stories. I think there are six in total, and you should read them all on Wired.com. I've read three of them so far, and they are, in fact, fantastic stories. And we have more coming, right? Yes. 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 So they're rolling out over the week. So uh, when you're listening to the show, if you hop right on the website now, I think you'll be able to read four or five of them. But by the end of this week, you'll be able to read all of them. I very much appreciate that recommendation. And it's, yeah, the team here has done a really fantastic job. Yes, for sure. Uh, What's your recommendation, Lauren? Uh, On a lighter note, my recommendation is uh, something of a life hack. So uh, whenever I travel to see family, I typically want to bring little gifts, uh, useful things, not like just a gift for the sake of a gift, but maybe like a local coffee here that I want to share with them or a jar of honey um, or maybe some cool soaps or something like that. Things that I think people will actually use. But right before you travel is a really, really bad time to determine that you want to do this. So my best life hack is that as you are out and about in the world throughout the year on a normal, regular Saturday running errands, and you see something, particularly if it's on sale, but if you see something that you think at some point you might want to gift to someone, just get it. Get it at that moment. Don't put it off. Buy the thing, buy the small thing, and then keep like a section of your linens closet or a shelf in your room or something where you just keep these items and build them up over time so that when you get to the point where you're like trying to pack your bags and you're going somewhere and you're thinking, oh, I'd like to bring like a little housewarming gift to these friends or, you know, like you have the things, you have them ready to go. I admit that I always I always like I wanted to be that lady like when I was when I was younger I was like when I grow up I'm gonna have like a shelf that's just like filled with like really nice little gifts so I always have something on hand and I'm working my way towards that this is the physical wish list this is like the online shopping wish list made physical it is, but like do it IRL and do it at your local stores and obviously not perishables but you know find things that are like cool and special and meaningful in some way. Don't don't just like go on Amazon and say, oh, I have to order something because it needs to arrive in two days so I can take it somewhere. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's my shopping hack. That's that's pretty good. That's yeah. much better than just like drop shipping something to somebody. Yeah. You don't even need an AI to do it. Just <laughs> do it yourself. All right. Uh, Jason, it is such a delight having you back on the show. Uh, you need to come back. You need to write another book so you can join us in the Gadget Lab again in the near future. Maybe the next one will Oof. be about Target or something. <laughs> um, there's there's a good book in Target. Not for me. 
but uh, <laughs> Jason's like, I'm never smart person again. <laughs> my wife will not be my wife. My kids will leave me, but um, I will, <laughs> but I will have another Gadget Lab interview on my calendar. So. <laughs> it's all worth it. Can't win them all. <laughs> so great seeing you. Thank you for the time. Thank you guys. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter and Mastodon and Blue Sky and all the places. Just check the show notes. Our producer is Boone Ashworth, who has been shopping on Amazon and Walmart while we've been taping the show. Goodbye for now. We'll be back next week. Hackers and cyber criminals have always held this kind of special fascination. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple Raston, and on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them. We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it. Click Here, stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. AI machines, satellite, engine ignition, click here, and liftoff. Click here every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. From P-